those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> Welcome to the Vegan Vanguard, a show about all things from the perspective of two revolutionary vegan women. I'm Mexi, and I'm Marine, and this is our very first episode. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I try. Yeah. Yeah. So for this first episode, we wanted to tackle a topic that's very close to both of our hearts. Why leftists should be vegan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're planning to be out a podcast every two weeks. We're going to release them every other Thursday um, at whatever time. <laughs> um, we'll discuss that. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully, like, our aspiration in the future is to put one out once every week, but we just have to, you know, see how it goes and uh, kind of get into the swing of things at first here. Um, So we have a website that you can check out. We'll link it in the show notes. And you can also subscribe and download the podcast via iTunes or Google Play. So, Maxi, should we introduce ourselves a little bit? Yeah. um, Why don't we just talk a bit about our channels and how we met? Cool. So uh, I have a channel on YouTube. I go by the name. I sorry, this is Maureen because I realize the listeners don't really know our voices yet. Um, my channel is called A Privileged Vegan, and I talk about just a lot of things on there, but related to you know leftism and anti-capitalism and veganism. Uh, yeah, and I called it a privileged vegan just because I wanted to try and unpack my position of privilege within like the vegan movement and highlight how that did impact, you know, how I'm able to practice veganism. And also, you know, the fact that I really wanted the deconstruction of privilege and of capitalism to be at the center of my practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you take like a pro intersectional approach, which is very, very dope Mm -hmm. because you like, I love your channel because you're able to you know, look at topics through a variety of lenses at the same time, or you're able to like synthesize a lot of information and critique what's going on through a variety of lenses and not just one. Whereas I kind of like stick to one at a time. (laughs) What? No, that's not true. I was going to say thank you. That's so, that's so kind of you to say, because I feel the same way about your channel. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I also have a channel. Um, I started as a vegan channel, but I kind of moved into what I know best, which is political economy. So yeah, I basically provide political economic analyses of current issues, which sounds really boring, but it's actually like, yeah, I, I kind of like critique what's going on um, in the world today relating to politics and economics um, through yeah a leftist perspective and a vegan perspective. So mm-hmm. Yeah, and we actually met via YouTube because we found each other's channels and we were so into the other person's channel and we were just like, ah. <laughs> I still remember your very first comment. I don't remember what video it was on, but when mm-hmm. I checked out your channel, I was like, fuck yes, like another, <laughs> just like women that I relate to so much on YouTube talking about these things. And I feel like our first exchange of comments was just like gushing. We were just like, yeah. oh my God. So excited to find you. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. I was so excited to find you. I think I found you through like Reg Flowers. And until mm. then, like I was just surrounded by like Uber reactionaries or people who just like were not even remotely clued in or political at all. Mm. And I found your channel and I was just like, this is a wealth of like 
everything you're saying is amazing. Like, so yeah. 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 It felt very much the same way. It was yeah. a very exciting YouTube day. It gets lonely out there sometimes. Yeah. My God. Especially with like the kind of people that are taking over. I mean, like, you don't say. Yeah. Taking over YouTube, like both the vegan YouTube and also like the political YouTube. Just a ton of reactionaries and people. Yeah, in the vegan movement who just could not give a fuck about what happens to other humans. Right. Which is, like, sickening. And a lot of leftists who could not give a fuck about what happens to animals, which is... That's true. Which is what we're here to talk about today. Yeah. This is why we've started out with this very (laughs) podcast today. Yeah, that's true. So then, after speaking via Facebook for a few weeks, that led to us adding each other on WhatsApp and sending each other like between 10 and 30 minute voice notes each time <laughs> just because we loved speaking to each other and um yeah that plus like a couple of hours of Skype each week basically we just completely fell in love yeah and yeah <laughs> <laughs> and we were like well clearly we have a lot to say and I've always wanted to start a podcast and it'd be super dope to do that with you Yeah, I just thought it was such a great idea, and I'm stoked to get started. Here we are. Yeah, so I hope everyone enjoys. So today we're going to talk about why leftists should be vegan, something that we are both very passionate about. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're going to start with some theory, um, like theorizing veganism within an anti-capitalist framework, and then we're going to move on to some actual statistics and looking at how the exploitation of animals, people, and environments are happening in real life today. And then we're going to move on to a discussion of whether veganism is bourgeois. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. So I'm going to start off by defining veganism, not that I get to define it for everyone, but we wanted to clarify that veganism in the way that we'll be talking about throughout this episode, is a political stance. It's a ideological framework that seeks to abolish the commodity status of animals and that advocates for animal liberation. Um, it's not, you know, a way of consuming. It's not a certain grocery list. It's not a certain way to shop. Um, it really isn't a lifestyle Um, even though a lot of people like to talk about veganism as a lifestyle. But we really wanted to politicize it in today's episode and talk about it as just a larger ideology and why animals, um, non-human animals, should be a part of our anti-capitalist practice and way of thinking about the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So for yeah so with that definition anyone who believes in the philosophy of veganism of animal liberation or of the non-commodification of animals is a vegan yeah um and as a result of this belief they'll each each person is going to implement those values in he she or their lives um as far as is possible and practicable so that second part is going to be is going to look different for everybody because we all have different backgrounds and privileges and we all have different 
things accessible to us. Um, so mm-hmm. the the practice of the political philosophy of veganism is for each person to define for themselves. However, veganism is the political ideology in and of itself. Yes. So, yes, we just wanted to <laughs> make that clear. Um, yeah, we just want to make clear that we're rejecting the consumerist vision of veganism. Right. And we're re- re- rejecting the idea that you can only be vegan if you're privileged. Like, you're, right. you can only be vegan if you have the money to access that for yourself. Right. Because actually a lot of people will have the money to access only quote unquote vegan products, but Mm -hmm. might not reject speciesism. Right. Do you want to explain briefly what speciesism is so that people know what we're talking about? (laughs) Sure. Um, I'm actually just going to read out a definition of speciesism by Corey Lee Wren. Um, And I happen to really like this definition and it's the best one I found. So Great. Um, The definition goes, speciesism is institutional discrimination and, to a lesser extent, individual prejudice against non-human animals based on their species. Speciesism is violence against non-human animals that is perpetuated by the privileged human species, usually for the benefit of humans. It is conducted based on the belief that non-human species are lesser in some way. Speciesism relies on the understanding that there is an us and a them, that humans are on top and other animals are below. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also kind of felt like it had to do with the fact that, like, we value certain species more than others. Mm -hmm. So it's like dogs are our lovable little pets and, like, cows, like, we couldn't give a fuck what happens to them. Right. Maybe, Maybe that's wrong, but... No, definitely. Yeah, there seems to be, like, a hierarchy even within the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. No, 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 you're right. Yeah, so speciesism is both the, like, intra-species discrimination that goes on, um, <laughs> yeah. but ultimately it's it's about the structural oppression of, like, the the belief that humans are on top and animals are on the bottom. And another word you might hear is anthropocentrism, which relates mm-hmm. to speciesism, right? It's, like, the mode of thinking where like humans are at the center of all thought right exactly all right so what does it mean to be against the commodity status of animals um the point that i made earlier Uh, for me it means uh the belief that animals are individual people and that they weren't put on this earth just for our use or not even just for our use for our use period Um, That they're, like, Mm -hmm. individuals and they're sentient, they're intelligent, they're emotional creatures who exist for, you know, God knows what reason. The same reason that we're here. (laughs) Um, Just to, like, live their lives and that they weren't put here for us to use. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just recognizing that animals are people they have personhood they're individual you know anyone who has a pet right or a dog or a cat like knows that they have a personality and when they look into their eyes they can tell that they're an individuals with thoughts and a certain perception of reality and so mm-hmm. recognizing that personhood of animals is for me what means decommodifying them that they're not just like yeah that they're not just here for food or for clothing or for entertainment, um, that they're here mm-hmm. just to live their, their own little animal lives. 
yeah to be little animal dudes like even but even between my two dogs there's such a difference in their personalities mm. like such a huge difference yeah I haven't had a I have the only animal I've ever had even as a vegan now isn't it weird to talk about like your pets like the animal that I owned yeah well it, I mean it's actually my parents pets so it's not like technically right. mine but but still I love them so much <laughs> Um, anyway. was like a pet cat a really long time ago oh, yeah. and then like a few goldfish and that's it now I just this is the other thing I feel like people think that vegans just must all like really love animals but I don't even love animals that much I like them well I like them from like afar you know I, I, I recognize that they're like beautiful and I just want them to like you know go about their lives but like in my own space Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not. I'm not the biggest fan. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, I I love animals. Like I mm-hmm. fucking love animals. Like every animal, I just love them so much. Mm-hmm. Even like bugs, I'm like, I don't love them, but I'm like, I would never want to hurt them. Or you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but even that, like, like animal welfare wasn't the reason that I initially went vegan. Um, but it's something that I've kind of like opened my eyes to, mm-hmm. um, once I got into it. So anyway, that's kind of off, to- off topic. <laughs> yeah. I do feel like, yeah, just a last, a last comment on that <laughs> note is that, um, I do feel that as someone who like was never really an animal lover, like becoming vegan, I, I, I can sense, I have sensed my like love for animals grow a little mm-hmm. bit. Like yeah, when I, yeah. you know, when I'm around them now, I'm just yeah. kind of like, oh, yeah, I like just I was... adore them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that kind of feeds into our next bit of theory about this like false dichotomy between humans and animals, or this false um, construction of this human-animal divide. Um, right. And this is something that we talk about a lot in my field, just like the social construction of nature, like our idea of nature as something that is external to us, something that we can see physically. Like we have these, you know, conservation spaces that are bounded in space. So it's like, there's nature out there. And here's me in my modern house here, which is not considered to be nature or natural in any way. And, um, the way that we do this, like the way that we externalize nature from ourselves and like just remove ourselves from that ecosystem or from thinking of ourselves as animals and as part of that ecosystem, it's a way of externalizing nature and that feeds into its commodification. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people will talk about the fact that, you know, capitalism has commodified so much of nature and animals, etc., is at its core part of this false, false dichotomy or false um, way of conceptualizing right. our place in the world. Um, because if something is external to you, if it's something that you can measure and convert into metrics then you can, you know, quantify that and then you can commodify that. You can sell that for a price. Um, And so, yeah, this externalization or this false dichotomy kind of feeds into our exploitation of nature and also our, just our disconnect and our thinking that animals are somehow, like, like we are not animals somehow. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and even the idea that we are not animals, like even though scientifically, I feel like most humans know that that's not true. Like mm -hmm. we are animals, we are mammals. Mm -hmm. This this whole binary is absurd between humans and animals because there's way, 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 way more similarities that exist between us and a monkey, right? Yeah. I wish I could come up with a species of monkey right now. and Bonobo. A bonobo, exactly. There, there are way more similarities between a human and a bonobo than yeah. between a bonobo, am I pronouncing that correctly? <laughs> yeah. And like a fish or an ant or even between, I don't know, like a gazelle and a rhinoceros or something. There are way more differences that exist between those species than between us and a bonobo. Mm -hmm. So it's absurd that we say we're humans and they're animals it creates, as you said, this false binary, this illusion that we're more different mm -hmm. from other animals than they are between themselves. Yeah, don't we share like 99% of our DNA with so many we really primates? Do. Yeah. yeah, more than that, it's exactly. like 99.9%. So Exactly. So there are, you know, how does that work? The fact that there are so many more differences like amongst different species in the animal kingdom than between us and most given species, yet... We are qualified as humans and they're qualified as animals. Mm -hmm. I know. And there's even the argument that like, oh, well, humans are self-aware, but now they're realizing that, you know, dolphins are self-aware, like elephants are self-aware, like all, like all these other species right. are actually self-aware. We just don't know how to, to measure that. Like, how do you measure whether a species is self-aware, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Another point is that if you think about all systems of oppression or of all hierarchies, they've been structured along this spectrum between who, between who is more human and who is more animal, right? So we know that even like biologically, like the human species, like so many people weren't considered humans because they weren't white and cis and male and heterosexual, so on and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. So it's helpful to think about animal as like a status, as a political category that the dominant class just casts on whoever they want to objectify or they want to exploit or they want to extract resources from. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, the human-animal divide exists on this spectrum where whoever uses others as a commodity is more human and whoever is used as a commodity is more animal right with different you know with different levels of with different gradients but right yeah yeah we're going to talk about like colonialism in a bit but that's exactly the kind of othering that happens in like that kind of colonial appropriation and oppression kind of turning the local people into savages, into animals, mm -hmm. into barbarians that are not worth or that need European saviors to come in and civilize them, right? To, to make them human, to make them civilized in like a colonial capitalist sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you start to see, you know, human as just this privileged status that whoever is doing the oppressing claims, right, then you can really start to see the commonalities between different victims of this system of oppression of this mm -hmm. you know white capitalist patriarchal right european system of oppression um and on that point i wanted to talk briefly about 
how vegans often make these comparisons that are considered very offensive and rightfully so between, for example, you know, there's this sort of famous photo <laughs> that puts, you know, that stages like uh, a pig that's being hung versus a man that's being hung and presumably mm. lynched. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the caption reads like only the victim has changed, but what... I've heard Afco say this, um, who's a vegan woman of color and Afro-feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm sure other people have said this as well. What's, what's problematic about that image of those side-by-side victims of oppression is that the, per, the system doing the oppressing is completely absent from, from that image, right? So in terms of, you know, the system that's responsible for animal agriculture or for systematic racism. Um, those are actually, those are actually, there's so many commonalities that can be said about the oppressor there. However, Mm -hmm. when you're just, when you're leaving that out of the photo and you're just showing like the two victims and you're drawing a direct comparison, um, it's quite, it's yeah, understandably so considered. Yeah. Oppressive. Right. And like, similarly, the, the relating like the animal holocaust to the real holocaust is similarly um yeah offensive obviously Mm -hmm. and really not precise you're right about naming well who is the oppressor here and like what is like what are we taking aim at here right and actually on that point there is (laughs) we keep going on tangents you can tell we're not very (laughs) We're not very professional about this yet. We're just like, oh, and this idea, this idea. But and there, this. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there is a book called Eternal Treblinka, which I have not read yet. So I will, you know, hopefully my summary of it won't be too ignorant. But it talks about how in the animal, in the, the Holocaust, there were a lot of the techniques that were used um, in concentration camps were techniques drawn directly from animal agriculture and from mm. slaughterhouses. Mm-hmm. And in turn, kind of the, it's disgusting to say this, but, you know, the progress in terms of the mechanization of the the death tools they used in concentration camps were then used to, uh, quote unquote, you know, to make slaughterhouses more efficient or to better slaughterhouses mm. later on. So there is really a direct there is a direct connection between like the, just modernization and mechanization and like the industrial revolution um, between like human and animal oppression. However, that needs to be named mm-hmm. and it's not just like the victims that should be compared because um, it's almost redundant when you do that. Right. It's almost like yeah. you're showing two victims of the same system, like talk about the system. Right. Yeah. And like for people who aren't, really aware of what happens in the animal agriculture industry they're just going to be wildly offended that you're comparing right you know their their uncle's suffering to what's going on to a pig um mm-hmm. so it like you know pragmatically it's like probably not the best <laughs> approach but mm-hmm. um but anyway yeah i wanted to mention like what you're talking about about this kind of gradient between human and animal and how um you know, the oppressors dehumanize victims. Like that's 
largely how you victimize someone is you dehumanize them. And I was just thinking about women and, you know, what they go through, um, like recently with all this, you know, sexual misconduct and different allegations coming forward. Um, yeah, I just felt like there's, there's a, a similarity there. And so, yeah, I'm not being very hard to no, absolutely at the moment, but yeah, I just feel like what you're saying about animalizing people as a form of oppression is exactly what we see in so many other areas um, in like racism, sexism, transphobia, etc. Yes. Hopefully yeah. in the future, we'll do an entire podcast about feminism <laughs> and, and veganism. Yes. Another way that I like to talk about animals and humans um, is by talking about animals that are trapped in the entertainment industry as political prisoners. And I have Christopher Sebastian, who is another one of my uh, favorite animal rights activists, to thank fully for this. Um, when I first heard him talk about political prisoners, about animals being political prisoners, it just really was like one of those aha moments because he talks about the prison industrial complex um, and how certain humans mm -hmm. are like enslaved for profit, right? And for the perpetuation of this mm -hmm. white supremacist heteropatriarchy. And he also, you know, talked about zoos um, and aquariums who hold captive certain animals that are political prisoners. And this really hit home for me when I went to the aquarium like three months ago. Um, no, this was not something that I willingly did as a vegan one day, but <laughs> I, I got home. Um, I got to the house of the person I was babysitting. Um, <laughs> I know I'm keeping this person very mysterious, but this girl that I was babysitting and her dream was to go to the aquarium and her mom was like, all right, so I've already like reserved the Uber. Like you guys are going to go to an aquarium, like here are your tickets. Like, so at that moment I was just like, <laughs> well, okay, like I'm going to go yeah. to the aquarium, you know, um, almost like I'm going to see it as it's like this ethnocentric like opportunity for me to like go back into one of these spaces that I haven't <laughs> been to in so long. I wasn't thrilled, obviously, but I was kind of like, because you need employment you under do. capitalism. <laughs> um, I was like, this is going to get me like 30 bucks an hour. I have no choice. Um, actually, it wasn't even 30 bucks. It was, you know, it was babysitting. So it was less than that. But anyway, um, I, I needed the employment at the time. So I went to this aquarium um, and it made me so sad. I really didn't expect to have this like mm. really visceral reaction just because we live in a world where people like consume animals like, you know, like three times a day or all the time. Like I'm so used to, I guess, being like, being around like speciesism and this reality of an animals being commodities, but seeing fish like different tropical fish from all over the world in these tiny ass tanks um labeled mm. with like the name of different countries you know like vietnam or cambodia or this one is from like venezuela or whatever um mm -hmm. was just yeah. so sad i was like wow these these like fish are individuals and they're conscious of this reality like in whatever way like obviously it's not they have a different understanding of it than mm -hmm. we do but they're they're trapped and they're here because some asshole is making 
so much profit off of their imprisonment. And mm-hmm. we've completely, completely commodified them. I mean, it is so clear when you walk around a zoo or around an aquarium that the people are there for an experience, you know, and they're mm-hmm. like, well, yeah. Um, and like, if you look in the eyes of the animals, they're so fucking sad. Yeah. Like I saw this yeah. poor, it was a chimpanzee and it just looked like it was about to cry. Like it yeah. just was not happy at all. That was so clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like same um, in Toronto, they made this new Ripley's aquarium and I refused to go. It was like this big to do because it was down by the CN Tower and the Rogers Center and everyone was all hyped about it. And I just, I have refused to go. Like basically everyone has gone except me. And my ex-partner was all upset because he was just like, oh, like it's it'll be fun. It's like a new thing, like whatever. Like so upset that I was like just refusing to go to this thing. But then I read an article about like how they actually got the fish for these for this aquarium and I was totally vindicated because it was like for every one fish in there they had to catch 80 and like 79 died um because it was such a stressful um you know a stressful experience or like they died during transport or whatever right and like the amount that they were actually destroying the coral reefs to actually go and harvest all these fish that they would need. Um, and just, yeah, just the amount of fish that died just for one fish to be in there was just ridiculous. And then like on top of that, it's like, you know, the sharks and like, I don't know if they have dolphins or whatever, but it's just, it's too much, you know, it's like, they're too big to be in here. So anyway, yeah. Definitely. Like... No. And, and plus, and plus all of this is, like hidden under the guise of like conservation, right? People almost think like they're doing a good thing by going to the zoo and by supporting the conservation of these animals that were like otherwise going to like disappear in the wild. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also like, yeah, think about why so many species are going extinct. Like, yeah, exactly. You know, climate change and deforestation and capitalism and all of that. But yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of people in this aquarium or in the zoo that you're talking about, um, and I believed this as well, definitely, before I learned the reality of it, is like, oh, you know, they're, you know, it's, they're these endangered species. Like, it's it's mm-hmm. wild how we create these categories, and then they're so normalized and naturalized in the way that we think about the world. Like, some mm-hmm. species are just are just endangered you know some food is just like organic or something Mm -hmm, like I was I was was thinking about that too but just this whole concept of like organic food now it's like a whole different Mm -hmm. we just think about food that's organic but I saw this meme that was like organic food or what my grandmother used to call food you know (laughs) but right yeah yeah yeah, this is the reality, you know. Some animals are mm-hmm. pets, some are made to be in zoos, some are made to be food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have you seen that like cute video of that Australian kid who like I don't know, he's like five, but he comes to this realization that the animals in zoos are like it's like they're in a jail. No. Have you seen that? Okay, well I gotta show everybody this video. <laughs> I'll post it on my Facebook page. It was so cute. Aww. But anyway, you know. Yeah. So yeah. Um, cool. Another little tangent. I'm starting to see how this goes now. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So branching from that, um, thinking about, you know, the politics and economics of animal liberation, I wanted to talk a bit about anarchism and Marxism specifically with relation to the idea of veganism. So obviously anarchism, I mean, I think I'm, I'm like obviously not an, an like expert in anarchist theory, but I believe that anarchism has more of a history with veganism um, or like more of a direct history with veganism because anarchism, as Simon Springer talks about, is the ba basically the rejection of archy. So it's anarchy. So the negation of archy, which is like any form of hierarchy. So patriarchy, capitalism, racism, speciesism, etc. So Simon Springer, who I've talked about a lot, who is like a very badass, cool anarchist geographer, um, he talks about how anarchism basically entails a categorical rejection of all of the interlocking systems of domination. So that includes capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, um, you know, all the big ones, racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, transphobia, homophobia, but also speciesism and carnism obviously along with the state um, and organized religion. So I just want to shout out Anarcho-Pack. They made a great video about this topic and uh, I'm not going to go into everything that they talked about, but they bring up uh, Peter Kropotkin, who is quoted as saying, civilized man will extend his principles of solidarity to the whole human race and even to animals. And then also another anarchist geographer. Basically, there's this whole anarchist geographer movement. Like, I'm in geography, right? So there's this kind of uh, increasing or, you know, growing circle of scholars who are anarchist vegan geographers. And I think it's actually really rad. Like, I, I love... There's going to be uh, a book coming out about, like, veganism and, like, anarchist geographies. And I'm, like, so excited for it. <laughs> It's but awesome. that's just me nerding out. But anyway, so another anarchist geographer, Elisée Reclus, um, wrote against the oppression of animals by humans as early as 1896 and 1901. So again, I won't like talk about everything that he talked about, but he basically discusses um, the violence and the degradation of non-human animals that's part of meat-eating culture. Um, the ways that this degrades our environment as a whole and feeds into this problematic nature-human dualism uh, that we talked about before that makes us think that nature as a whole is there for our exploitation. Um, and also that meat-eating culture feeds into other forms of domination like racism and sexism and other hierarchies. So basically that it acts as a foundation for violence against other humans. And I think that fits in well with like what you're talking about, but like the Holocaust technologies being like modeled off of animal violence and exploitation, because yeah, obviously if we're conceiving, if we're conceiving of our entire world as implicitly hierarchical, then it's going to affect the way that we behave and the way that we treat certain categories of people or non-human animals that we deem as less than basically yep yeah yeah when we learn to oppress one one group then we are going to better oppress the next yeah and so on and so forth right right exactly and like be be able to justify that violence with greater ease absolutely <laughs> you know yeah 
Um, so this kind of feeds into what I was thinking about in terms of fetishization, because um, like, I feel like buying animal products is kind of, you know, the most stark example of fetishization under capitalism, because people are so removed from how that product was made. Like, people don't like people go to the grocery store and buy this like super sanitized packaged up nice little neat you know meat product maybe it's fashioned into like a little chicken nugget or something like you're not going to look at that product and see a cut up dead chicken you know what I mean you're not going to understand where that actually came from right um I think about that sometimes when I see like another person eating an you know, or it's, when I see a chicken nugget, I'm like, how many animal parts mm-hmm. of animals are in there? When were they all killed? Where are they from? Like, yeah. you just, we have no idea. Mm-hmm. And people just, they don't want to know and they don't really care. But it's like, if somebody had to stand there and watch somebody like string up a cow from its legs and slit its throat and then cut into it and cut out a big hunk of meat, Like, I don't think that most people would be standing there drooling and thinking like, well, that looks so appetizing. Blend Mm, that up. Steak. Yeah. Let me let me just bite that hide. Like, you know, people would just be vomiting and like really disturbed. Um, So I feel like this is like just the height of fetishization, especially when you see all these commercials for like Super Bowl Sunday and like chicken wings and beer and like. Big Macs, it's like nobody's looking at that Big Mac and thinking about a cut up dead cow, you know, (laughs) like they're just, you know, they're not. Yeah, right. right? No, yeah. Like, and they're also not thinking about um, like the, the workers or like what kind of work went into this. Like, they're not thinking about the labor that went into this at all. What did that look like? Um, Who's making this food? Are they getting paid? Are they get like, how are they being treated? It's just this beautiful little Big Mac in like a, you know, snippy McDonald's commercial. It's just the height of fetishization, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, No, it just kind of bothers me. (laughs) Definitely. And how, right, how the burger patty is not, it's not even like, it's become a whole thing in and of itself and a whole commodity Mm -hmm. in and of itself that people completely divorce from like the, you know, any actual recognition of what went into making that product mm-hmm. or like a leather jacket or something like that like right. it becomes a le- it is a leather jacket it is not like the skin of a dead dead animal right um there's an a really amazing author called uh carol j adams that talks about how meat is the absent referent for the animal in feminist theory i i don't know who came up with the concept of absent referent like kind of when when on commercials you see like just boobs you know or just a piece of a leg or something like that Mm -hmm. um of a woman and how that body part is actually like the absent referent for the person that stands behind it but how the person that actually like those limbs become like belong to is completely irrelevant and yeah so she talks about meat being the absent referent for animals um, mm-hmm. yeah in a book called sexual politics of meat which i encourage everyone to check out yeah we should do a, a podcast on that mm-hmm. um but yeah no because i went to the cne in toronto and every year they have this like farm exhibit 
and you go in and you get to see a bunch of like farm animals and I, I always love it because I love animals so much so I love like going and like petting them and seeing them but it's like there's this real like heavy and like depressing tenor to the whole thing because you realize that like they're all captive and they're all going to be turned into products and they don't even label like they label like the cows they label them beef so it's like it's not it's not even like here are the cows it's like this is the beef section and they're live animals and I'm just like yeah like yeah it's just such a (laughs) such a stretch for me but people don't question it so yeah I mean they always say that like if people could see or like if um if slaughterhouses had glass walls then everyone would be vegan or like similarly I feel like if people actually had to like slit an animal's throat their selves and then cut it up and eat it they would not be doing it (laughs) right for the most part for the most part I mean I know there's people who like love hunting and like or like you know inter like other cultures and like indigenous cultures or whatever it's like it's totally different but um yeah I feel like for the average like middle class western citizen um they would be like fucking appalled by that right (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and we're so we're such naturally like empathetic creatures you know and mm-hmm. i think in those cultures where killing is um yeah a lot you know animal killing is like ritualized and it it is you know a sad you know it's it's seen as this well i don't know i don't want to speak for other cultures but um there is this like ritual around the fact that you're like taking a life you mm-hmm, know and yeah. and it's not supposed to be this like completely meaningless act that takes that that happens by like the millions and the millions each day um mm-hmm. it's just right yeah exactly it's like a relationship and not just like some invisibilized thing that brings yeah. it to your plate yeah. Um, vegans say like you know put a baby in a playpen and bring it an apple and a lamb and see which one it eats and see which one it plays with right yeah yeah and there's so many videos of like young kids realizing what they're eating and just being destroyed oh, by absolutely. it just destroyed mm-hmm. yeah I should post some of those on my my Facebook yeah. did you see the one I think of like uh, it was some I think it was a Venezuelan girl eating an octopus oh yeah yeah she realizes that it's an octopus and she's like did it have a family yeah she's mortified (laughs) have you seen the one like i think it was a little i think they were from vietnam i'm not sure but it was a young boy and the mom had like cut off a bit of this fish and he was desperately trying to put the cut off piece back onto the fish and make it move and be alive and he was like what's happening to it (laughs) he was just like so upset (laughs) He I was just not wailing, crying, and I was like, oh. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, that, that's like forced out of us by our society. Yeah, which is ironic because <laughs> when we're little kids, like we love animals so much. Like mm-hmm. literally every single one of our games or movies or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, stuffed animals. I mean, yeah. is, is a stuffed, is an animal, you know? Right, exactly. Um, but then we learn to... I have memories of of me as a kid definitely like having a lot of cognitive dissonance around that being like oh yeah 
-hmm. wait, this animal is like sentient or this animal is alive. And then you just kind of rationalize it as like, oh, but no, we need to do this. And those animals are food and other animals are not food. And those are the animals that like a pet and whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Anyway, um, so that was basically, I was talking mainly about anarchist thought, but this is, this is, um, you know, not just for anarchists. Um, Marxist thought can easily be, you know, related to animal liberation. So I'm going to read a quote here that I like from Christian Witkin. So he says, since capitalism is the object of our critique, Marxists should address all that capitalism destroys. If you do that consistently, you will soon realize that capitalism does not merely exploit and oppress the class of wage laborers. Indeed, you will find references in the works of Marx from his earliest writings through to his late works on economy to the fact that nature, and therefore explicitly animals, are subjugated and exploited by capital. Take this as a starting point, and you will begin to understand how the mode of production and the social practices in which we participate distort our view not only of our relationship to the means of production, our work environment, and the commodities we produce, but equally that of our relationship to animals and nature. This distorted view, which is, to a certain extent, shared by the oppressed and oppressor class, must be criticized just like the exploitation of humans. Very Boom. solid quote. <laughs> yeah, I just, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I, I mean, I just love that quote. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so spot on. I mean, um, you know, even though Marxists don't necessarily like the definition of Marxism isn't the same as anarchy. It's not the same as the rejection of all hierarchy entirely. If we're against oppression and exploitation in all forms, then of course we should be against exploitation and oppression of non-human animals. And the direct theft of their labor and their lives for profit. I mean, mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. yeah, when I hear now Marxists talking about like labor exploitation, I'm just like, make the connection. Like it just, you are describing exactly what we routinely do to, you know, billions of animals every year in order to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. extract resources from them that are not right. ours. Well, we appropriate their labor basically because we're not paying them. They're not actually, they're, they're not laboring in the sense that, um, you know, they're doing. No, but Maxi, what would they do if we didn't milk them? They would just, they would just be bored on the field. Oh, right. Yeah. They would just take over the world because <laughs> nobody would be killing them. So they're Wait, I've gotten that response so many times. They're just like, but what billions. would they just like do? Would they just like, graze like what would they do if we weren't there to make them do something which is also an argument that you hear about that you hear from like capitalists right if like when we're like abolish work it's just like well what would people do there would just be complete chaos or people who are like apologists for like the sweatshop system it's like well what would they do without the sweatshop right. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah Anyway, do we? Uh, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll make another podcast about that. <laughs> I feel like you were on something, and then I interrupted you. No, it's all good. That was basically the point I was making. Um, was just that, like, from both from both Marxist and anarchist perspectives, I mean, it just makes sense to enroll animal comrades as our allies, and like to want to and their exploitation and their commodification just as much as we want to end um, 
the exploitation and wage labor of humans. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so ad- additionally, anarchists and Marxists also, you know, this is another point of theory, but they also would be highly critical of colonialism and imperialism, etc., and the way that capitalism has spread around the globe. And a big part of that that is really not talked about is animal agriculture and the way that that has contributed to the spread of colonialism and capitalism Mm -hmm. over history. Yeah. So European, it's impossible to talk about European settler colonialism and just colonialism in general without also talking about animal agriculture. Um, European settler colonialism could have never happened without animal agriculture Um, And this is because, you know, 500 years ago on the whole continent of North America, there, there weren't any domesticated pigs, chickens, or cows, those animals were brought to the continent and uh, bred, bred, breeded. (laughs) How do you say that? (laughs) Bred. Bread. Bread. It sounds weird. Yeah. (laughs) Um, we're, We're bred, right? And since animal agriculture... I mean, it takes a huge amount of resources to breed animals for food um, and grow the crops that is needed to sustain those animals. I mean, animal agriculture is inherently not only hierarchical, but also expansionist. And so it requires taking up just a huge, huge amount of land. And Mm -hmm. um, not only is it, yeah, expansionist, but it, it, you need to take up more and more land, um, especially under capitalism. And so it's a really effective strategy to, you know, displace people from their land um, and centralize all of the resources because it requires so much energy um, Mm -hmm. into into a small place, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, um, like in in geography again we we call that territorialization mm-hmm. where it's like like conservation was a mechanism to territorialize um north america basically so it was a, it was just basically legitimizing the state coming in and taking claim of all of this territory and then basically evicting first nations like primitive accumulation basically so animal agriculture obviously did the same yeah and on top of uh, of the that great point that you just made, it also completely disrupted the food sovereignty of Native Americans. So they actually had one of the most sustainable and advanced um, systems of agriculture that was built mostly around three crops. I think it's like corn, barley, and um, forgive my ignorance on this, but they called them the three sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a really wildly effective and sustainable system of agriculture mm-hmm. um, that was not hierarchical and that also was very, very focused on plants. So there was very little usage of animals. Um, so, right, coming in, European settlers, when they implemented animal agriculture, it was a very effective way to displace Native Americans from their lands and also to disrupt their food sovereignty so that, you know, they could mm-hmm. centralize all the food and privatize it and mm-hmm. sell it for profit. And, like, force them to become wage laborers. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have food sovereignty anymore, 
you can't access food, you're stuck on a reserve, what can you do? You have to engage in capitalist markets. Mm -hmm. And really, the colonizers didn't give a shit if they could access markets in like, you know, a fair way. They didn't care if they had education or resources to engage in capitalism. It was just, we want your land. Um, So yeah, really disrupting. And and today... Um, I saw this stat today, actually, because I was rewatching this amazing talk by uh, Dylan Powell. We'll link it in the show notes because mm-hmm. we will have show notes now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he said, you know, he he quoted this this statistic that one fourth of all the privately owned land in North America is used for animal agriculture. It's used to graze animals, um, and yeah. we know that one third of the land worldwide is also used. To, by the animal agriculture industry. So, um, yeah, it is just so clearly a tactic of colonization and a tactic Mm -hmm. of like building this hierarchical capitalist state where you centralize and privatize all of the resources and then force everyone into becoming a wage laborer. Otherwise they die. Um, there's also this really great book. It is also the name is like, escaping me right now um but I know and and you know my knowledge about this is not great but um that the Europeans since they since since Europeans had animal agriculture a lot earlier than the rest of the world they actually built up resistance Mm. uh to certain bacteries for to certain to certain (laughs) bacterias <laughs> certain, certain bacteria for no, you know what? It's because I was mixing the word bacteria and centuries, so I went back anyway. Bacteria for centuries because they had you know all these like rodents and all these domesticated like pigs and whatever, all these domesticated animals. Um, so they died of like all the like just infections and plague and everything like centuries before everyone else did. So when they came to other parts of the globe, like the Andes and like certain parts of like what is now Australia, just like 80% upwards of 80% of the population would just like die out because they couldn't resist these bacteria Mm -hmm. that the Europeans had built up Mm -hmm. from centuries of animal agriculture. So it's just like animal agriculture is so intricately intertwined with the with imperialism and with the development of like everything that leftists criticize about like the state and about capitalism and this system of domination Mm -hmm. and um right yeah that's and that's so important because like imagine if they had all been healthy and like fighting back you know what i mean like when 80 percent of the population dies of course you can just go in and take whatever the hell you want and you know basically force the rest to be your right slave laborers i mean there's this myth that it's just like well uh, you know it sucks that colonization happened but they were just like the europeans were just stronger they like yeah did a really good job in battle it's like yeah no like Mm -hmm. like just because they were so like dirty and bacteria resistant they got there and like (laughs) the population like dropped dead like they didn't stand a chance right right And it's because of these, like, you know, whatever, centuries of exploiting animals, and then they just went on to exploit humans, you know, with that ability. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's really fucked up. And, like, colonialism itself is 
you know, a spatial practice. Like it's first and foremost, the acquisition of land Mm -hmm. um, and like the displacement of people, like we said, in primitive accumulation. So yeah, I mean, animal agriculture plays a much bigger role than anyone I think gives it credit for or that anyone even realizes. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's happening today, like with like current land grabs as well. Right. Um, so the animal agriculture industry is, you know, this is still one of its favorite tactics um, because it <laughs> animal, ag- like by nature, the nature of <clears throat> animal agriculture lends itself very well to like ongoing imperialism. Um, but yeah, the animal agriculture industry is planning to double the consumption of animal products by mid-century. God. Um, so, yeah, and it's already, like, tripled or quadrupled its production oh since, God. like, the 1970s. Um, so how is it planning to do this? Well, through land grabs of tens of millions of acres in Africa and Latin America for mm. future grazing and feed crops. Mm. And these land grabs are funded by hedge funds and multinational corporations and other powerful investors. Mm -hmm. So the animal agriculture industry and, you know, quote unquote, national security advisors are planning a really a military response to obtain resources that will be very scarce in the future, such as food and water and arable land. I think you're going to talk about scarcity later, but it's like Mm -hmm. this whole, you know, leftists really denounce this myth of scarcity and rightfully so but like we're actually creating that scarcity and the future you know it's it it, all these resources are really going to be scarce and animal agriculture like is an institution that is going to continue to be weaponized to help the elite class obtain those scarce resources yeah well i mean the resources are going to be scarce under capitalism and animal agriculture is a way that you know, they are continuing to prop up like imperialism and capitalism into mm-hmm. the future, right? So like this is fucking scary to me, actually. Like double- well, it's because it's like creating this I can't even get my mind around it because animal agriculture is a way to create this it is creating the scarcity, but it's also a way to help the like privileged elite ownership class mm-hmm. like reap the benefits of that scarce situation that they're creating. Right. Well, I mean, it it gives them legitimation to say that capitalism is what we need because resources are scarce. Mm -hmm. So it's like a vicious circle, but it's also just um, incredibly scary to me in terms of like an environmental standpoint, in terms of a sustainability standpoint, like how can they possibly think that we can double our consumption of meat by mid-century? I mean, a third of the land is already being used like... It's going to be, like, two people and, like, just (laughs) billions of animals in animal agriculture by, like, the year 2050. Right. And, like, how do they think they're going to use these militarized responses to force everyone off their land so that they can get this land to, you know, produce animal products and sell them for profit? Like, who are they going to sell them to? All these dispossessed people with no money? And you know what I mean? It's Credit cards. Yeah, credit cards. I mean, they just... Yeah, I I mean, I've, I've talked about this before about how like capitalism destroys what it needs for its own reproduction, but it's like they're not even bothering to try to think about the long term mm. impacts of this for both their own profits or for the environment that they need to sustain them. 
Right. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just like, that's really fucked. Um, but I'm going to talk about the exploitation of the environment um, shortly. Um, so I will get into that and why this is actually so terrifying. Uh, but first, I want to talk a bit about what's actually happening to animals. Because I feel like when we say animals are being exploited, I don't know that it's really mainstream information exactly what is happening to animals. Um, like, I always recommend people watching Earthlings. I've actually not watched that video because I was already vegan when it came out and I was like, I don't need to see this. But like, I'm aware of everything that they cover in it. Um, so I think it's a really important video if you want to see what's actually happening to animals. Um, but anyway, in terms of like global figures, between 52 billion and 70 billion animals, farmed animals, are killed every year for food. And that like that figure doesn't even take into account the amount of fish and aquatic animals that are killed every year. Um, the number for fish and aquatic animals is in the trillions. So it's like it's unfathomable. I mean, numbers that large, you can't even like, there's no context for that. It just sounds real big, but like you can't, like there's absolutely no context for understanding what that actually looks like. Um, but it's huge. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to talk about a bit of what happens to like each different kind of animal. So in terms of animals that people think are like cute and fluffy and like don't want to get killed, um, baby male chicks, I'm not sure if people know this, but, um, baby male chicks have no value to the egg industry because obviously they can't become laying hens. So as soon as they're born or like a day after they're born, they are killed en masse. <laughs> like they're thrown into, they're either thrown into a grinder where they're just cut up alive and die or they're stuffed into these giant bags and then they're like the bags are tied and they suffocate inside or they are gassed. Um, so I don't know, the data on this is kind of, uh, there's like different numbers for this, but they say that 200 million are killed in the US um, or that, that was in 2009 and 40 million were killed in the UK in 2010. Um, so I'm not sure about world data, but like male chicks are getting a real raw deal. Um, and then the laying hens that are kept alive are given like probably a worse deal. They are forced to just live in these tiny, tiny cages where they cannot move. Most of them do not see the sunlight. They do not get to touch their feet on, you know, grass or anything like that. They are, they're just stuck in these cages indoors in this terrible, you know, industrial facility. And they're just forced to reproduce, reproduce, I mean, like, you know, produce their eggs over and over and over. And I talked about this in my Esther video about how um, this is so draining for their system. Like it drains out the minerals, it drains out cal calcium and such from their bodies. And so eventually the eggs that they lay just become really soft um, mm -hmm. and they start to actually not come out of their bodies properly so they'll they'll get infections and just get really sick and, and die prematurely um, most of them are so stressed that they actually lose all of their feathers so if you see any pictures of them inside some of these facilities you'll see that their their wings just look like little um 
it's like they there's just little spikes sticking out of their body because all their feathers have fallen off and so there's just the bone left so it's really just horrific and i know that normally laying hens get you know something like 12 or 15 periods a year because their egg is you know when they it's basically menstruation Mm -hmm. um it's like ovulation and menstruation um but they've been genetically modified to ovulate like 200 times a year or something like that yes um so that's also incredibly unhealthy for them because they're Mm -hmm. forced into these cycles of ovulation that are completely unnatural and that are incredibly incredibly destructive to their bodies yeah exactly yeah no good point i didn't mention that but that's 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 a big reason why their systems get so depleted because they're doing this so so much more than a normal hen would be doing this so yeah, it just becomes ridiculous. Oh, I had no idea about the feathers, and I've Ugh. always wondered why they have no feathers. I thought yeah. maybe that they like clipped them off or something, but no, that's just so sad. Yeah, they're so stressed that they just fall off. It just becomes, ugh, it's just disgusting. Um, and I mean, most of them are so sick. So I mean, like the stuff that you're eating, right? Because then when they die or when they stop producing eggs, they just they just slaughter them for chicken, right? Right. And same with the meat chickens. Like, they're also kept in deplorable conditions. And a lot of them get sick and die. And, you know, their meat is still used. <laughs> so it's like right. the meat that you're eating is so unhealthy. So for, for people who are like, oh, well, I don't eat beef. I just eat chicken because it's cleaner. It's like if you only knew what you were <laughs> – like, if you saw the kind of sick animals that you were consuming, you would just – I don't know. <laughs> you know. Not eat them. Right. And that's why like so many of them are washed in chlorine because yeah. they have to be because they're so gross. So anyway. So yeah, so the meat chickens are bred so that they um like they obviously have the biggest breasts possible. Um so it becomes impossible to impossible for them to actually walk um because they're so lopsided, they're so top heavy. Um Uh, their legs stop working it becomes very difficult for them to move um, because they're bred in such an unnatural way Um, so a lot of them actually end up going down they're called downers um, and they just kind of like fall over and their legs can't support them anymore and then yeah they can't walk anymore no it's kind of just toast for them Um, so yeah it's like really devastating so yeah, also what happens to dairy cows? Um, so I was going to recommend watching the video um, "Dairy is Fucking Scary" on YouTube, um, but Marie and I were talking before the podcast um, about whether it's actually ethical or speciesist to even recommend that people consume media that's watching, you know, horrible images of animals being treated or or slaughtered or etc so i also i also recommended earthlings a while ago but it's it's the same thing um so you know if you don't consent to that if you're if you're not down for that it's totally fine um but if you're interested um these are resources that show you like exactly what is going on Mm -hmm. so yeah anything to add marine No, that was that was super well said. Yeah, no, it's something that I definitely like struggle with. I think that ultimately Yeah, I think that ultimately if people choose to go watch that footage, um 
And I think it can be a really powerful kind of paradigm shifting moment for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. then I would definitely recommend it. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes I feel sort of weird or icky about that just because I really hate, um, like, you know, even like ending hunger campaigns that show like starving African children, like dying of like thirst or of starvation or of something like that, like mm-hmm. a basically like fetishizing, like, or objectifying like a person to in order to like make a point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wonder if when vegans show footage of animal slaughter um, very freely, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I guess this is, you know, we're talking about how when they show it to people who don't necessarily consent to it being shown, you know, yeah, to it being showed to them. Um, if that is sort of speciesist because we would not do the same with, you know, rape awareness, rape raising awareness campaigns right. yeah. or, you know, yeah. ending hunger campaigns or things like that. Yeah. Anyway, but that is, yeah, <laughs> it can be a podcast for another day. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, it's just like me personally, I was very affected by the Darius fucking Siri video. So if anyone is interested, then you can check it out. But yeah, again, I, I understand like... And I was very, very affected by Earthlings. I mean, I watched like 10 minutes of that video and I shut it off. And like that is the day when I actually decided to go vegan. So right. like, yeah, I yeah. totally see... <sighs> yeah, it's yeah. a really hard line to walk. Right. So anyway, I'll just describe what happens to dairy cows and then you can you can make a decision about whether you want to actually see what happens to them. Um, mm-hmm. So basically, dairy cows, um, they are forcibly impregnated on what is called a rape rack, um, which is a whole loaded thing that we can probably do a whole other podcast uh, on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, they are continually forcibly impregnated on what is called a rape rack so that they will produce babies so that they will produce milk. So the milk is that they produce is actually supposed to go to their baby. But the baby is once again violently and forcibly ripped away from them basically right upon birth. Um, and you'll often hear, or maybe you don't hear, but you should hear, that the dairy industry is actually the veal industry. So all of these baby cows that are born um are and ripped away from their mothers are basically shut in a small crate where they cannot move or stand or anything so that they don't no they can only stand they can't lie down i think oh i thought they couldn't stand like they can barely move so that they don't develop their muscle so that like it becomes like they their muscle like their meat is still really soft and tender and like fatty um yeah So, yeah, they're kept in these crates and then they're killed very early in their lives. Um, The dairy cows, and those are mostly males, right? And then the females grow up to be also dairy cows. So they are um, just brought into this cycle of being forcibly impregnated and then having their babies ripped away. And, like, the emotional trauma of having your baby ripped away is well-documented. You know, cows will call out for their babies for long periods of time after they've been ripped away um it's very very taxing on their bodies to to give birth and then to produce all this milk um so yeah so the dairy cows basically um their lives are cut short 
just like the laying hens because of how much this is taxing their bodies and then they are slaughtered for meat so for vegetarians who think that like oh i'm eating dairy so i'm not harming any animals like you know it doesn't hurt a cow to milk them um there's like a very <laughs> disgusting and like cruel underbelly to this industry that i don't think many people know about frankly um ah, so yeah <laughs> very gross um and then of course the beef cows i mean people pretty much know what happens to them um goats are similar i watched there's this um environmental documentary called terra and they had a just a segment where they showed goats that are milked industrially and they were just forced into this circular revolving machine upside down it looked so uncomfortable and these metal prods just came out and like milked them like very violently it looked horrible um and yeah like this is just all what happens when you commodify animals when you make living beings commodities um so yeah i mean there's like so much more i can talk about i mean fish that's a whole other thing <laughs> like fish are just treated terribly um you have those like huge trawling fishers that just go out and catch everything in their path and like they're killing dolphins they're killing tortoises they're killing sharks they're killing everything and they're just discarding all of that waste and keeping what they can sell um so it's just doing like incredible damage to the underwater ecosystems and yeah um once again i said like in the trillions fish are being killed I put dogs on the list because obviously there's like Yulin and like every year everyone like loses their shit over the Yulin dog festival, not realizing that like, well, what the fuck is going on every day to pigs and cows and chickens and fish and everything else, right? Um, it's kind of just the height of hypocrisy, but anyway. Um, and then there's everything like animal testing and using animals for entertainment, like in circuses and zoos, etc. that we talked about. So, I mean, I could honestly talk forever about this, but yeah, I just wanted to kind of give you a taste of like how animals are actually being exploited for these fetishized commodities that we're consuming without thinking about any of this. Um, and how this is totally covered up by the industries, like... <laughs> totally covered up um so yeah not only are animals being exploited but the land is being exploited so we talked about how like one third i've seen up to 45 percent of global land space is used up for animal agriculture which is the most fucked up thing to think about actually um actually there is a stat let me try and find it so yeah, 30% of the Earth's land mass goes towards raising animals. That's about the same size as Asia. Um, it's 17 million square miles and the moon has less area than that. Oh my God. <laughs> the fucking moon has wow. less area than that. Yeah. Wow. Like, unbelievable. The equivalent of seven football fields of land are bulldozed every minute. That's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's, I mean, that like puts it into context for you. 
Um, yeah, it does. Yeah. So a meat eater needs about 18 times more land than a vegan. And like, again, that's hard to quantify, but when, if, if you think about a population of like 7.5 billion, then that's like a fucking lot of land. Yeah. Um, in terms of water, like this animal agriculture uses up so much water, nearly half of all water used in the, in the United States goes to raising animals for food. They say that like one third of the world's fresh water is used for animal agriculture, which is absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, like eating one hamburger, like one hamburger would use 3000 liters of water, which is equivalent to showering for two months. That is actually it's fucked nonsense yeah it takes more than 2400 gallons of water to produce one pound of meat versus one pound of wheat taking only 25 gallons right 2400 versus 25 like it's fucked up um yeah and to the people who think that it's more sustainable to eat you know, quote unquote, sustainably raised meat. There's no such thing no. because actually that 3000 of liters would probably turn to 5000 liters of water because that animal is alive for longer yeah. and they need more land to graze and they need more, you know, so like every day that you're keeping that cow alive, yeah. you're spending, you know, there's like 50 gallons of water and like, mm-hmm. you know, however many like dozens of pounds of grain that go into like sustaining that cow for one more day. So right. The shorter the life, um, the more sustainable it is. Mm-hmm. Right. No, that's such a good point. Like, yeah, people who say that, like, oh, well, I only buy like free range meat, or whatever. And I'm like, that's even less sustainable from like <laughs> a global resources right. perspective. So, congratulations. Not only have you not made a good point, you've, <laughs> yeah, right. you've like, yeah, like buried, you've dug your own grave. Right. Yeah, and like the like the point, like the reason why this is so inefficient is because you not only have to, you know, clear land and make land for the actual feedlots, you have to clear all of this land and use all of these resources, fossil fuels, water to grow the crops that you're going to feed to the animals. Right. So it's doubly inefficient. So 70% of the grain and cereals grown in the US are fed to farmed animals. 70 fucking percent excuse my language like that is just unreal yeah unreal and and there are a lot of there like hist- this has been going on for like centuries but um countries like very very quote-unquote poor countries or countries that you know have been colonized like during i think it was in ethiopia in the 1970s there was this terrible famine um, and there, the country was still exporting like large amounts of grain to feed mm-hmm. fucking animals that we in like Europe and North America were eating, you know? So mm-hmm. yes. just all the food that goes into feeding animals, like not only does it contribute to global, like world hunger, like a lot of times it's like literally, I mean, it's taken out of the mouths of like human beings to instead be raised to like, to like fatten up the meat that we as you know privileged white people yeah privileged white people eat so yeah. i mean it's just nonsense this whole idea that we can care for animal rights or that animal rights need to i, I mean animal, sorry <laughs> human rights jesus um that we can save 
that we can that we need to save humans before we address animal suffering it's like it's so it's so tied Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah yeah intimately tied that's such a good point yeah so it's completely inefficient it's completely exploitative of people and environments and it's one of the number one or it is the number one contributor to climate change so um yeah, it accounts for 70% of all agricultural land use, occupies 30% of the land's the planet's surface, and is responsible for 18% of greenhouse gas emissions such as methane and nitrous oxide as well as CO2. And this is more than all of the cars and trucks and transportation systems in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um like I I think I talked about this in one of my old videos, but I deleted it because it was like such a it was a poorly made video. It was like my first video that I ever made. <laughs> but I talked about how like in terms of climate change, like they're talking now about all these ridiculous solutions, like um, like literally blocking out the sun, like flying oh these satellites up to block out the sun, um, using sulfur dioxide as like this cloaking um, cloud that's just, um, you know, sits above us and again, basically blocks out the sun. No Um, way. I didn't even know that. Oh my God. I I, honestly, we should do an entire podcast about it because it's so messed up. And I'm like, guys, we don't have to do this. We can just reduce our meat consumption. We can just marginally reduce our meat consumption. And like, we would save the same amount of like, we would cut our emissions, like the same or more than we would if we would we're doing these right. ridiculous but things that wouldn't be good for capitalism and no. plus think about all that innovation and investment that's going to go into making that huge fog machine yeah no you're right i mean actually. you got to think about the growth of employment yeah you're right yeah how New silly how silly of me <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, oh how silly i did not consider innovation okay scratch that let's do that instead right exactly so yeah, um, another reason why this contributes so much to climate change is because um, like when you deforest all of these areas, you're losing a carbon sink. So trees act as a carbon sink. They absorb the CO2 that we pump up into the air. So if you're cutting these down, you're releasing the carbon that's stored in those trees and you're also losing sinks. So there's more CO2 or more greenhouse gases that are floating around. Um, And in terms of methane and nitrous oxide, methane is a 25 times stronger greenhouse gas than CO2. And nitrous oxide is a 300 times stronger gas than CO2. So even if you're emitting these in small small amounts, they're going to have a significantly higher effect on warming than if you're emitting a lot of CO2. And so this is so problematic like so problematic um and in terms of deforestation animal agriculture is responsible for 91 percent of amazon destruction um the area of rainforest cleared for palm oil is 105 billion meters squared compared to for animal agriculture it's 550 billion meters squared um And I mean, as vegans, you probably don't want to buy palm oil either, (laughs) but like just, you know, the magnitude of deforestation that goes along with this is just fucked up. Um, So yeah, in addition to that, the fisheries are now failing 
um, you know, coral reefs around the world are dying. Um, this is intimately linked to climate change because, you know, trees are a carbon sink. Also, the ocean is a carbon sink. And the more that it absorbs CO2, the more that it acidifies. So it turns into, I think, carbonic acid. I have to check that. But it, it acidifies with, um, with a lot of input of CO2. And so we're getting, you know, ocean dead zones, we're, which are also affecting the fisheries and their ability to produce, you know, sustainable catches. So um, a study done actually predicted that or predicts that the global fisheries will collapse around 2050 um, and that it'll become increasingly difficult for us to, you know, get any sustainable catches from the ocean. So it's pretty fucking scary. <laughs> like, yeah. I should still I'm be alive. That, I'm surprised that's not sooner, actually. Yeah. I mean, like then... a lot of things are happening now that like much faster than we had anticipated. Absolutely. And I, again, I, I talked about this in one of my videos on climate change. Uh, maybe I can link that because it didn't really get a lot of views, but it was like important. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but there's all of these positive feedback loops that are now being triggered by the release of all of this CO2 and like the warming of the planet. Um, so like there's the melting of the ice caps and there's the melting of the permafrost, which are themselves releasing greenhouse gases. And this is being accelerated by a warming planet. So things are starting to like mm. snowball and happen a lot faster than people expected. Like, you know, what percent of the Great Barrier Reef just died? Like that was... <sighs> yeah, no, wasn't it like declared dead? Yeah, it, well, it was like two thirds of it had died. And I don't, I don't know... I haven't looked at like the updated stat, but like apparent, like we're like past the point of no return. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I could not believe that. Like the Great Barrier Reef going to see that was on my bucket list for sure. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I got to get there before it, it dies. But I really didn't think it would die right now. I mean, everything is just happening so much faster. It's yeah. terrifying. It's fucking terrifying. <sighs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's basically the exploitation of the environment. Now, as leftists, maybe you care more, <laughs> or I don't know, you should care about the exploitation of the environment, but if you don't, you might care about the exploitation of slaughterhouse workers. So the exploitation of slaughterhouse workers is one of the most exploitative industries on the entire planet. Mm -hmm. um, currently slaughterhouse workers at least in north america are mostly refugees or undocumented immigrants um that can be freely exploited by these multinational animal ag corporations uh the the job of like you know working in a slaughterhouse is itself extremely dangerous um you know, first of all, there are really toxic chemicals that, you know, as Maxi was saying earlier, um, since these animals are so sick, uh, in order, you know, chicken will get bleached before it goes into processing, or there's just all sorts of chemical washes that need to occur between like the slaughtering process and the actual like packaging process. And those are really toxic to human health as well. Um, I mean, you're talking about incredibly powerful, like disinfecting, like and antibiotic rid ridden, like sprays and 
pills and yeah. Anyway, um, but also like the the rate of slaughter the the rate of slaughter like a lot of slaughterhouse workers need to kill like upwards of a hundred animals like a day. Um, so slaughterhouse work is incredibly repetitive to up the efficiency. So. Um, after the animals are either like shot with a deadbolt to the head or gassed or, you know, whatever method is being used that day to kill them, um, they then have to be sawed up by, by other workers. Um, and so the hand saws that they use are incredibly powerful and are like, you know, obviously mechanized, um, to saw the animals up and down like as quickly as possible. So you can imagine if this is, if this is like a cow, it's a huge animal that's hung up by its feet. Mm -hmm. Um, and sawing the animal is, is really dangerous work, you know, because it's like incredible, incredibly powerful machinery. Um, so if you're, you know, working 12 or 15 hours a day, um, you're not, a lot of them, there have been cases that are reported where they're not even allowed to take bathroom breaks. So slaughterhouse, a lot of slaughterhouse workers have to wear diapers mm-hmm. um, in order to yeah. like go to the bathroom on the job because they literally can't even, mm-hmm. can't even like take a break in order to go to the bathroom. So like when you're like, imagine how dangerous that is to handle machinery that is like so powerful on like when you're so freaking exhausted um and then there's the whole problem of like being incredibly traumatized by the sort of work um having like i think um if i'm not mistaking slaughterhouse workers have the highest rates of suicide out of any other workers because it is so incredibly traumatizing and depressing to work in the slaughterhouse understandably and worker exploitation doesn't only end in slaughterhouses. There's terrible working exploitation in fisheries. Um, notably, I know that The Guardian recently, or not recently, maybe this was like a couple of years ago, came out with a large report on how all the shrimp that basically like Western consumers were buying, like at Whole Foods yes, or yeah. in Walmart, um, were like from slave labor. Um yeah, we'd it'd be a good idea to pull that article up again, but yeah, workers in that industry were mm-hmm. like, I mean, basically working literally like, you know, like 20 hours a day in terrible conditions, getting horrible infections, um and weren't getting paid. And once again, they were they were illegal migrants, so they had to accept this or they would they were threatened with deportation. Right. And, um, you know, on the basis that this is just not that it's somewhere in the supply chain that Western corporations can't like, you know, can't monitor, then um, we turn a blind eye and and these products end up in our, you know, in our grocery stores. So in terms of labor exploitation, there really there are few industries that are as mm-hmm. that, that brutal that. Yeah, that are as brutal um, and exploitative as as the ones in the animal agriculture right. industry. Like I struggle. I mean, I struggle to think of any industry that is more inefficient in terms of like resources and the environment. And I struggle to think of any industry that is more exploitative to their workers 
um, because it's disgusting. So yeah, like it says, um, the Food Empowerment Project says that today U.S. slaughterhouses and meat processing facilities employ over 500,000 workers, and the turnover rate on these workers is 100% annually. (laughs) 100% because it's such terrible work. Yeah. Wow. 100%. And then, yeah, like as you said, like these are mostly people of color that are undocumented that the companies can exploit and i was watching um i don't know if it was food inc but it was one of those documentaries and they basically like they showed like they went into one of one of these communities where people were just kind of huddled together um living in terrible conditions and um they filmed like a raid of the area like a federal raid and of course the employers are not the ones that are being reprimanded for for employing undocumented workers or for treating their workers so poorly it's the workers who were arrested and deported and like and deported yeah Mm -hmm. and like their families destroyed and everything so yeah and now um not only are is the animal agriculture industry employing like refugees and undocumented migrants which they've been doing for ever for like decades um before it was a lot of african-american at least in u.s slaughterhouses mostly african-americans and now it's like mostly undocumented immigrants from mexico and more and more like refugees from the middle east the ones that make it over Mm -hmm. anyway yeah um and now there's also prison labor that's getting Right. It's getting a good share of of that. So um, dairy, so prison prison laborers for sixty six cents a day um, are having to like milk cows, um, harvest honey or fillet fish in order to. Um, I mean, yeah, because it's forced prison labor. So it's not <laughs> right, just like yeah. the garment industry. Um, yeah. Like we're told, it's also just like, yeah, more and more the, the meat industry is just finding new ways to make profit. Um, mm. and, and it's the most disgusting yeah, human exploitative labor conditions ever. And a lot of these, by the way, these are products that are ending up in like, like artisanal, like hippy dippy like whole foods type of places you know um oh and i was like online and i went down the rabbit hole of like reading the comment section which you should never do never, on an article never, talking never. about prison labor <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that was talking about prison labor and like so many fucking people like like white capitalist assholes are like well this is really good because at least they're like close to animals and it's gonna like oh. rehabilitate their soul and i'm like that's just like the most messed up way to think. First of all, like there's nothing rehabilitating about like like enslaving and slaughtering other animals. Mm-hmm. Um, the opposite. And if you, yeah, and it's this whole idea that like through hard work, you know, mm-hmm. especially if they're lucky enough to work outside with magnificent creatures. Mm-hmm. They're going to be rehabilitated. Yeah. It's just, it's disgusting. I mean, we're going to have to like do a whole other video on like the prison system probably. Um, but yeah. I mean, most of these people are not even con- convicted criminals. They're just in there because they can't pay their, their bail. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah, literally. Or Which they were forced to accept because, because if they didn't plead guilty, then they mm-hmm. would be in jail for life. Exactly. So yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I just wanted to give a few quotes here from slaughterhouse workers, like describing their experience because it's like, oh, it just makes me want to vomit. Um, so in terms of like the line speed and like how fast they have to do things, um, most facilities operate nearly 24 hours a day, seven days a week, killing and processing hundreds or thousands of animals each hour. So one worker stated, the line is so fast that there is no time to sharpen the knife. The knife gets dull and you have to cut harder. That's when it really starts to hurt. And that's when you cut yourself. Um, and like in terms of repetitive stress, they're doing the same motions all of the time. And so they get a lot of repetitive stress injuries, etc. And a lot of them don't report the, these inter- injuries at all because, again, they're, you know, precarious workers. They don't have the leverage to be able to confront their employers like that or, like, to to report these things without losing their jobs. Right. And this <sighs> is all on the Food Empowerment Project website. Yeah. Um, which is a really amazing organization that does – that has done so much work around, like – yeah, slaughterhouse human rights. Yeah. Um, and just human rights violation in so many different um food products. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And like, yeah, the thinking that thinking that, you know, prison laborers would be rehabilitated by slaughtering animals is just absurd because there's actually research now that shows that mm-hmm. this has such a traumatic psychological and emotional impact on the slaughterhouse workers themselves um you know most of them are being diagnosed with ptsd or like other consequences include emotional you know um domestic violence and withdrawal from society and anxiety and drug and alcohol abuse um like research actually found that towns that have slaughterhouse have higher rates of domestic violence including murder and rape and like other violent crimes so yeah yeah and and that people who are violent towards animals like it trains them to be violent towards like the most vulnerable humans notably Mm -hmm. women and children yeah um i know that there are other there was a study that um stated a very clear correlation between those yeah, who are violent towards animals and how that engenders them to be violent towards other people and how households, something like 90% of households where there was, like, abuse reported um, by, like, the person in the household, the abuser was also violent towards their the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's yeah. just, it's so tied. I mean, when you, when you... Ugh, objectifying someone is the first step towards like performing violence against them yeah no absolutely exactly said that but um yeah when you learn to objectify animals when you learn to objectify sentient beings that's gonna make you be more violent towards other people yeah um yeah i found this research that said like the more positive a person's attitude to animals the lower their aggression levels and the reverse is also true so yeah exactly what you just said Mm -hmm. (sighs) <sighs> so yeah that's that's mostly the exploitation front um I just wanted to briefly mention that like you know as leftists who talk about post-scarcity all the time like as we just talked about the environmental issue we're definitely not going to reach a post-scarcity society 
with meat production continue ever. yeah ever but like especially continuing apace um and like there's a lot of people who are banking on like cultured meat and growing meat in labs which is like all right I mean that's a whole other thing um but in terms of like animal agriculture and like the way that we're currently practicing this industry um it's just not going to work out and like to be able to feed a growing population with the amount of meat that we're eating today the factory model is the only one that we could use just in terms of like scale um and that'll never be sustainable so we're going to either be forced to reduce or just perish because we burn the earth up into a ball of fire All right. And the last thing we wanted to address is the criticism that we hear a lot um, (laughs) that veganism is bourgeois or is only accessible to, you know, hyper privileged people who can buy, you know, luxury items and superfoods. And I think, you know, I think that there's there's guilt on both both sides of Mm -hmm. both sides of this question. Like, I do think that sometimes definitely vegan mainstream veganism is responsible for perpetuating this idea that veganism is like a white thing that's Mm -hmm. only that's like yeah that's this like way of living that is actually wildly inaccessible to a lot of people and that's talking about veganism as like a mode of consumption and a diet and like I think we are the first to I don't know like acknowledge that and Mm -hmm. my channel which is called the privileged vegan like definitely tries to like I definitely try to talk about the fact that I'm not just a vegan I'm a vegan living in like a western industrialized country like with enough money to have a very have a very like easy vegan life Mm -hmm. um however here we're talking about veganism as a like political philosophy that advocates for the liberation of animals for all these reasons that we have just cited um, and that's not only talking about veganism as a diet. However, um, veganism is more accessible than people might think, um, at least certain people. Um, there's a lot of ways to make veganism veganism cheap. Um, Mexi was talking earlier about the example of people who eat, you know, like bacon and eggs or make themselves bacon eggs for breakfast it's like well like oatmeal is definitely mm-hmm. cheaper than that <laughs> and also more sustainable mm-hmm. um and <clears throat> there are like rice there's a really beans. great cookbook yeah rice and beans and you know we're not saying that people should just go vegan and that poor people don't deserve to like have any of like the fun vegan stuff that's been mm-hmm. out there you know like vegan ice creams and i mean that's a, that's like a whole other conversation and we definitely like acknowledge that like, yeah, your level of privilege is going to affect how you can practice veganism. However, just because, you know, especially like there's like comfortable like bros sitting in their house, like (laughs) eating their meat being like, well, like I won't go vegan because like a mother of five living on food stamps, like who I've never met, like doesn't have the privilege to go vegan. You know, it's just... Mm -hmm. And that's also, like, really tokenizing and offensive, I think, to – like, that's, like, really tokenizing of poverty mm-hmm. um, to just, like, refer to it as, as like, a reason or, like, to, to 
perpetuate the abuse of animals. Um, it's like right. pretty fucked up. If you're not experiencing that poverty, like yeah. if you're not living in a food desert and like you're just going to a regular grocery store, then like there's absolutely no reason you can't <laughs> just switch. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, yeah. um, and there's this really great cookbook that I wanted to plug um, that's not out yet. Um, but it is written by a woman of color who is, who wrote a whole vegan cookbook about how to eat plant-based on food stamps. Um, and Mexi was also here. Do you want to recommend the PDF that you were telling me about? Yeah. So there's actually a free PDF online, which we can include in the show notes and it's called good and cheap. And it's a cookbook that this woman wrote, um, so every meal, I think it's it's how to eat well on under $4 a day or maybe $4 a day. Um, so most of the, like, they're not all vegan recipes, but most of them are vegetarian at least. And they can be made vegan if you just don't put butter, like if you substitute butter with oil or something or, um, you know, you just leave out certain um leave out or swap certain ingredients but yeah i think that's a really good resource for how to make good cheap food um i realized i didn't even say the name of the cookbook that i was talking about it's called my food stamps cookbook and it is Mm -hmm. authored by baby mama rachel nice yeah um but i would love to check out that pdf that you just recommended because i haven't seen it yet yeah, no, I'll send it to you. I used to I used to use it. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of resources out there if you're looking for actually how to do this um, on the cheap. Um, you know, and again, like if you're living in a food desert, if you're if your situation is just such that you cannot access that all the time, um, you know, that's that's fine. Like we're not defining veganism as consumption here. We're we're defining it as an ethical position and a political position, um, in which everyone can participate. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, so tied to also, like, political practice and, like, prefigurative justice of saying, okay, well, this vision of, like, a more inclusive, like, anti, like, capitalist, like, revolutionary Mm -hmm. world we're imagining is going to, is going to, like, include animals as our allies because animals really are our allies and they also they definitely do not have an interest in the perpetuation of capitalism but also leftists will never go very far at dismantling the capitalist system if they don't seriously start taking into account the exploitation of animals mm-hmm. um it is just really short-sighted to think that we can continue consuming them um and objectifying them and that that isn't completely at odds with so many of the other goals that we have you know because hopefully as we've shown on this podcast and as other very brilliant people talk about Mm -hmm. they definitely are tied yeah (laughs) yeah so now that everyone's vegan great (laughs) wonderful let's start the revolution (laughs) (laughs) yes Tofu mm-hmm. dogs for everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, a lot of people actually might say that 
opening another can of worms here, a can of vegan worms, <laughs> um, but that like soy, you know, this is an argument I get so much that like, yeah, like soy monocultures are also just like so horrible and how vegans are contributing to that. And actually like 80% of the crops we grow mm-hmm. are fed to animals. So like if you're concerned about monocultures, if you're concerned about like, mm-hmm. yeah, like how we steal, like how we like take like soy or quinoa or corn or like whatever, all the fucked up stuff that goes on in those industries, like go vegan because you're still Mm going to be consuming. Like think about it. When you're eating a piece of meat, you're not just consuming that piece of meat. You're consuming like three years of like that animal having to like eat and drink and all of those resources. Like, yeah, exactly. Like most of the soy we're growing is going to feed animals. And you know what? That's another thing. How fucked up is that? These Cows are supposed to be eating grass. They're not supposed to be eating corn. Yeah. They're they're getting just completely right. fatty. Like the the quality of the meat is like so different than what it was even 50 years ago because they're not eating what they're supposed to be eating. So it's like it's unhealthy as shit. They're just eating sugar or soy. Like they're not supposed to be eating that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's terrible also for the they don't have like the digestive like mm-hmm. like fluids. Um not fluids the word that like enzymes or something <laughs> whatever yeah. they don't have the the constitution to be digesting this no. food so that's making us sick and that's exactly making it's sick. making everyone fucking sick and it's using up all these resources so <laughs> that. i feel like since it's late here i'm just like it's making us all fucking <laughs> sick just go be- <laughs> yeah well i feel like we can we should end at this point i feel like we've yeah. made our points um mm-hmm. so yeah I guess we'll see you in another podcast. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see you in another podcast. Okay, bye. Uh, Bye.